Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, please know that you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, abortion is health care, and that black lives matter. And we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. A couple of quick things before we get into the story for today. This is one of the listener-submitted stories. I think it's pretty good, and I hope you enjoy it as well. It comes to us courtesy of D. Clifford Owens, who can be found on Twitter at DavidOwens0. Link is in the show notes. If you're an up-and-coming writer of weird fiction and cosmic horror, and you'd like to see your work featured on the show, I'd love to have you. Drop me a line at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk. My wife and I just finished getting into our new house. I've got a new recording setup, so things may sound a bit wonky as I get dialed in. I apologize for that, and hopefully we'll be getting back to normal sooner rather than later. Thank you for your patience during this time. The Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities is available for purchase. You can get an ebook, a paperback, or a classy, cool hardcover. Please check it out. I'm really proud of it, and I know you'll enjoy it. Link is in the show notes. Thanks so much, and let's get into the story. Dearest reader, what follows is a truly disturbing account of my real-life journey to obtain the most revered of tomes. Those with a delicate constitution may consider turning away now. If you continue, I cannot be held responsible for the madness that might occur. You have been warned. The Sound That Haunts My Soul by D. Clifford Owens You've heard it said before. Music is my life. Well, being a lifelong multi-instrumentalist has been one of the most impactful aspects of my life. It all started with somewhat tedious piano lessons as a young man, but eventually music truly became my passion. In high school and college, I was the lead singer and songwriter of a few indie garage rock bands. I loved the thrill of the hunt of figuring out all the different parts of music, how to compose, how to play and record them all. Things changed, as they do in time, and my basement settled into a museum of bizarre antiquities, like old synthesizers and effects mixed with computers, mixing boards and recorders, and all of the basic pop rock instruments like mics and guitars, keyboards, drums of all kinds, and much more. What was once an ordinary average Midwest suburban basement is now more of a museum of oddities or perhaps the laboratory of a mad scientist than a music studio in some ways. Now, there's always some new app or new subgenre or something as seemingly inconsequential as a twist of phrase or the slightest movement of a daydream that can produce impetus for yet another bizarre symphonic modern soundtrack I must create immediately. Being an artist that has always strove to push the sonic limits with different frequencies, rhythms, and effects has given me a sincere aptitude for understanding sound in a more profound way than most people. That being said... There's only one sound I've ever heard in this life so far that has truly changed me. That haunts me. That torments and enthralls my heart and mind every night. That makes me pray to yet unknown gods and beings to silence it and, at last, give me peace. Part 1 
Back in the rather heady and salacious days of the new millennium, the internet was still young, and so was I. It was there, in the darkest areas of the net, that I first heard rumors of the existence of real grimoires, and my interest was forever piqued. Some say Al-Azif is real, and it is the grimoire that singularly predates them all. Even before the well-known ancient Egyptians' blasphemous tomes like the Book of the Dead or the Litany of Ra. But there's oh so much more to find for those of us with a more intensely burning desire who dare to search. Of course, there are some who know of the other classics, the Codex Gigas, the Liber Juratus, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, and a good old Aleister Crowley's interesting shenanigans. However, more serious studying and inquiry led me deeper into the unknown, to the Hecate scriptures of 1206, which told specifically of the inner workings of hell itself, the infamous pre-Germanic witcher guide Malleus Maleficarum of 1486, the Black Poulet of 1700s Rome, and of course one of the most infamous grimoires of them all, the Red Dragon, a.k.a. the Grand Grimoire of King Solomon. But for me, it was the ever-evil-slash-medieval Neurodimus Velnius, the one made by the most powerful and wicked necromancers of all time. For those who truly know its power, it is less of a book and more of a guide, a key, if you will, to the many dimensions of space and time in the multiverse. To those who comprehend basic string theory and quantum entanglement as something more than spooky actions at great distances, for those who understand behind every black hole, there is a white hole of unparalleled opposing power, and for those who understand the profundities of folding space and time at your will and facing the gods in those other dimensions, the Neurodimus Velnius Grimoire is the most important and powerful of all the ancient black magic books of demonology and most foul necromancy. Almost Everything back in those early days of cyberspace was the wildest and weirdest of the Wild West. All there was, was filth. In its purest, most vile, and depraved, odious form. Amateur porn of all strange, mind-bending forms, of course, and chat rooms. Hate-filled torture and snuff vids aplenty. It surprised me that it took a lot of time, a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and patience to earn the trust of even the worst of the most dangerous scum in the dark web chat rooms. But in time, I did just that. I started at the front doors like everyone else. I went from the entry levels of eldritch horror and D&D fan clubs into satanic cult chat groups and sacrifices. Beyond that, until finally, after much time, I was able to convince my Lithuanian connection-slash-point man, Mr. Yuri Natonovich, to finally invite me and my hard-earned $100,000 of American cash to meet him in order to procure what was promised to be, at the very least, a very original copy of the ancient dreaded grimoire, if not the original manuscript itself. The ancient spells and dark medicine and magic in an original copy of a certain antiquity has a multitude of dimensional power that most humans simply cannot begin to relate to or understand but with absolute power often comes absolute corruption, and in turn, the pursuit of absolute pleasure often brings absolute pain. The gods and creatures and beings of the other dimensional universe is beyond the average person's grasp of understanding. Creatures existing beyond what we deem as the only possible reality. These ancient gods have existed for time immemorial, 
And much like the cosmos itself, some have nearly always been and always will be. But, like all living beings, to exist you need sustenance. To some, nothing is more satiating than to sup upon the very souls of human beings. If at this point you realize it's best to stop, please understand. It is okay. I urge the reader, for their own sanity's sake and the sake of their immortal soul, to stop now. Part 2. Back to my own personal journey. It was with much patience, toil, cleverness, and trickery, along with some shamefully disturbing sacrifices that I won't bother dredging up for my own sanity's sake, that I eventually was able to accumulate the sum of $100,000 American cash, which was a lot for a young man in college at that time. For those who truly understand the power of money and history, I can tell you that large sum of American cash in Lithuania back in those days was like a million dollars, and indeed a very dangerous thing to go flashing around a place of such poverty. It was a dismal, painful, meager existence most people had back then. But I, having nothing but the brash, foolish, and trusting nature of the young, I took the chances to get that which I wanted most, to finally wield all the power anyone could ever wish for. I took the journey of a lifetime. And more. I remember the flight from Detroit to JFK in New York being quick and easy, but the flight from there to Finland being more tedious and taxing on me. I soon found that breathing in the brisk fresh air of Helsinki was able to refresh me, refill my sails, and re-energize me. The city, however cold and expensive, was beautiful and charming with the people being kind and welcoming. Coming from Detroit, I can tell you, between that and seeing the cleanliness of that city by comparison, along with the commitment to sharing concrete with nature, is something I found to fill my heart with joyful, happy, and hopeful feelings. These feelings would not last. The next morning, I took a large boat that ferried me across the Black Sea to the bleak Estonian shores with the grave-forbidding sky and rain perhaps telling me, Don't do this foolish and natural thing. Go back whilst you still have some aspects of your sanity intact. Alas, I did not heed the warning and ended up in Tallinn, the strange and peculiar capital city of that dark land of peoples, many of which were still living out the same kinds of basic agricultural lives of thousands of years to scrape out the most painstaking basic sustenance for them and their kin. Being so busy during the travels, keeping my young mind on the prize I so longed for, I hadn't noticed the dramatic change in the very nature of the beings I now walked along with. But as I started to realize and focus on it, I noticed the dismal negative energy and the gloomy peculiarities of avoidance and shifty eyes, along with quiet whispers in the strange ancient tongue of Lithuanian, among the other gibberish and unnatural tones in their grimacing gray faces, and I knew I was in trouble. I just didn't know how bad yet. Part 3 Yuri ended up being just as I imagined in some ways from all of our chatroom banter. Of all the Baltic peoples I met, he was the only one so far that made some crude attempt at joviality, even though it was probably just to get the money. But I admit it was still a welcome pleasure to finally be greeted once again with a somewhat toothy and smiling face. He was a sturdy older man of 60 to 65 years old. He was rather muscular, like a working man clearly of Viking descent, 
Time's ravages had started to chisel away, and the usual means in his deep facial lines and wisps of grey on the sides of his head gave him away. He could see I was eagerly looking into every face that was near me in front of the bistro, and I'm sure that my being the tall, lanky, and obviously American white-bred boy I am, with loud, colorful, garish western clothing, he could tell, and I heard him try his best to pronounce my name. Thou would? Yes, indeed, hello. And he shook my hand with the surprising strength of a young soldier. He started to walk me away from the main streets of the crowded and strangely quiet yet bustling downtown area, into a dirty, even more run-down, still communist Euro ghetto. Mean streets with shadowy figures ducking into alleys at the slightest sound like frightened prey. Without warning, he whistled a shrill, ear-piercing sound, and suddenly the sound of a beaten-down old 1940s-looking Russian-made car fired up its engine and sputtered smoke billowing from the tailpipe as it slowly rolled up. The tinted window rolled down and more smoke billowed out. This time it was foul-smelling cigarette smoke. I heard three to four deep voices start to banter back and forth in that ancient pre-Sanskrit Baltic language I couldn't understand. One thing was crystal clear. No one was going anywhere until they saw that big wad of American money. I flashed Yuri a peek at the cash, and then after a few more grumbling words, two of the biggest, meanest-looking Euro giants I have ever seen came out of the car. Each of these hulking, swarthy, barrel-chested men took a side and grabbed an arm, with the ugliest one pushing a dirty old potato sack at me. Yuri showed me with his hands that I was to put the bag over my head. I put it on, and off we went. It is true that I don't know where I was and couldn't see much through the bag, but a few things were obvious. This was going to be a long trip. I knew we were crossing borders from Estonia into Lithuania in a way that made the other passengers nervous. Before the end of communism, there was still a lot of nervous tension in the air about who went where and why, and everyone in the vehicle knew this was dangerous. However, apparently, I was the only one who didn't quite fully comprehend just how dangerous it actually was yet. We had clearly left the city and were on long, winding, dusty, and bumpy roads, and the smell of animals and nature was clear— but after a long while, what was most interesting was the fact that we were elevating. And when I say elevating, I mean it. What I'm saying is that the incline of the vehicle and duration of time on the incline with gravity pushing back against my head and chest along with the air getting thinner and thinner was obvious even without being able to see. That's the kind of elevation I mean. This was no hill. We were definitely going up a hell of a giant mountain, and judging by the bumpiness of the ride, into a wilderness not off-traversed by the likes of men anymore. After a while, between the air pressure, my allergies, the bumpy, smoky ride, and the fear that started to swell inside my stomach, I realized, dear God, how stupid and foolishly trusting am I? What an idiot. These goliathons could easily bury me alive in some random deep grave, and no one would ever even know. All of this dawned on me and I started to panic. My breathing quickened and I started to hyperventilate. I began to struggle and demand to take off the bag so I could breathe. As I did, the men in the car started to yell at each other. The most upsetting part for me was I could clearly hear the panic even in voices of those giant ruffians. My God, I thought, what on earth could it possibly be that would scare these humongous muscle-filled men into acting like crybabies? What the hell is going on? 
just as I was to the point that I could take no more and about to scream to stop and let me out, take the bag off and let me breathe, the car came screeching to a stop and I was pushed out. The bag was finally removed from my head and I coughed and breathed in the fresh air. After finally coming to my senses, I looked around and what I saw was something I will never forget till my dying day and beyond. It was almost beyond belief. We were on top of a gigantic mountain from the point of view of the eagles, and I looked down into the valley between giant mountain ranges and rivers where there was a strange massive clearing. From where I stood at the time, there seemed to be a large shadowy indentation along with big stones strewn about hither and yon. As I took it all in and finally came to my senses again, I felt a pushing on my back. It was Yuri. He was pointing towards the clearing and saying, You, go pushing me as he handed me a bottle of water, then motioned for me to give him the money. I guess the only somewhat clever thing I did in regards to the money was to split it in half. I handed him the first half. I said, Are you coming with me or staying here until I get back to get the other half? I have no clue how good or bad Yuri's English was besides 100,000 American money cash and you go but after I handed it to him, he seemed to understand and agree, or at least got busy starting to count as I hurriedly began my long walk down the mountain. There were no roads and zero trails on this perpetually dark side of the mountain. Luckily, I had my flashlight and I was on my way. After a few moments of walking among these giant shadowy trees, I heard the kinds of low grumbling sounds that smaller fauna of the forest are simply unable to make. I didn't see whatever these were, but if from sound alone I were to describe it, these creatures were large and something of a mix of wolf and bear, and there were many of them, and they were hungry. I quickly grabbed the biggest stick I could find and started to hurry myself down. I could see some light peering through the thicket of the forest, and I ran for my life to reach it as fast as my feet would go. Strangely enough, just as the terrible sounds were starting to close in on me, closer and closer and closer. I swear I could feel and smell the ghastly air of their panting on my neck, and then suddenly, poof, they vanished. Completely. Like, oddly. Very oddly. It made no sense at all to go through the hunt and then give up the prey the very second you had the prey in your grasp after such a powerful, intense chase. So strange. It was as if they vanished into thin air as they were about to pounce and devour me. I'm not sure what unnatural barrier I crossed over, but as I reached the end of the mountain and came into the light of the valley past the darkness of the foliage, the danger was suddenly gone. It was still slightly elevated in the clearing, and the sunlight shone through a dreary gray sky and gave light to astonishing, almost unimaginable sights. When I looked down, I had to stop and rub my eyes in disbelief and make sure it was real. The giant stone-like objects I thought I understood to be stones at the top of the mountain's perspective were actually parts of some extraordinarily massive, very ancient building, some ancient pre-Sumerian monument of some kind, something of what must have been an ancient pyramid, like those of the Giza complex or Angkor Wat, but mixed with something much larger and with elements of Salisbury Plain, along with a giant temple or castle where many gathered for something very intense, must have once stood here before. When I say before, I mean before some obviously rage-filled apocalyptic event of such an epic nature, it still gives me shivers to imagine now. 
the best way to describe it is as if some gigantic demonic entity, a size that would dwarf dinosaurs and skyscrapers, was once here and very angry. It seemed as if this giant angry god monster had seized the ancient temple and monument and angrily thrown it all about in a fit of rage. And as if that wasn't all strange enough, what came after was so astonishing I nearly had to remind myself to start to breathe again after my first glimpse. Being a man of sound mind that was fortunate enough to have done some traveling and had the pleasure of not only seeing but actually standing at the very edge of the Grand Canyon in person, one would imagine how restrained I could be after that in describing a certain sense of depth. But I can tell you this. The sudden, strange, and terrifying abysmal hole and seeming eternal chasm in the earth I suddenly saw in front of me is like nothing else on earth, or perhaps the solar system, if not the multiverse itself. Though the circumference was only that of a football field, it was the depth that made my stomach turn so sour. The vastness of darkness, the total sudden absence of any or all forms of life, and the never-endingness of it is the kind of thing that changes a person. I can never go back to being the person I was before, standing at the edge of this oblivion. I remember throwing the stick I had brought into the middle of the gigantic chasm, and I waited. And waited. And waited to hear the reassurance of the object hitting the ground. But it was in vain. For no matter how patient I was, no matter what stone or stick I threw in any part of the hole, nothing. No sound. It left me to wonder if this went to the very depths of the ninth level of Dante's Inferno, or was it the entrance to hell itself? Or, well, beyond that, did it lead into a multi-dimensional madness no human could bear to grasp? As the fear started to wrench my guts into cowardice, something caught my eyes. Along the perimeter of the hole, there was the crudest form of stairs. A spiraling staircase descending into the darkness below. I was thankful for my athletic prowess now. It seemed like for the first time in all the years of relentless tennis training my mother had insisted on, the cardio I had developed so strenuously was finally going to meet its ultimate match. I saw the sun starting to set, so I checked my flashlight. I was glad to see its illuminating glow, and I began my voyage down into the belly of the very earth itself. Being a nature lover, and coming from a family of camping fanatics, I am very accustomed to an earthy odoriferousness of nature. But what I started to encounter from the olfactory system was something I can only describe as a fetid stench of ancient antiquity untouched by man or any beings for a very long time. The dank, dismal smell mixed with death of some kind and rot and once again mixed over with something so naturally repellent and perplexing to the human system that I had no choice but to start mouth-breathing as I descended even further. The sun continued to sink, and after hours and hours, the blisters on my feet were oozing with blood with every painful step. Again, it became hard to breathe, but I urged myself to keep going. It is here, I remember saying, Dear God, what have I done? as defeated tears of anger and fear and frustration started to flow from my doubting eyes as I saw the flashlight go dim as the battery faded in uncanny, perfect synchronicity of impossibly bad luck 
with the setting of the sun. I'm now in complete darkness. And that is the end of part one of The Sound That Haunts My Soul. We'll wrap it up next Monday, Halloween. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon. Every dollar goes back into the show and pays for things like hosting fees, guest readers, licensing fees, and the gold-plated, diamond-encrusted soundproofing I use in my studio on board my yacht when my wife and I take our trips to Barbados or the Isle of Wight. Thank you to Elisa Maya, Joe Escott, and Lauren Maines for your support. Please go and get vaccinated with whatever you can get, especially COVID boosters and flu shots. I'm getting mine this coming Sunday, so when I record next week's episode, it will be with me being fatigued and sore from the shots. Yay! If you see a racist or any other kind of bigot out and about doing a bigotry, make them uncomfortable. Like, super uncomfortable. Like, Gina Davis being molested on The Letterman Show by Bill Murray uncomfortable. Also, fuck Bill Murray. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.